0: You're listening to Redeeming Grace Audio. For more resources or messages, check out redeeminggracecc.com. I can't imagine what it must have felt like for that generation of Hebrew people as they crossed over the Jordan River and they ate that first meal on the shores of the land that God had promised them after generations and generations of their, of their forefathers and mothers being in slavery in Egypt over 400 years, and then the next generation wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, not knowing if they would ever fully be able to grasp the promise that God had set apart for them to finally then be able to cross over that last boundary, that last barrier, keeping them from the promised land and to touch the dirt that God had promised them so many generations before. It had to be filled with overwhelming joy and just a complete and total trust in God. And so I imagine that when God instructed them to build an altar so that they would remember that moment, they probably were able to do so with happy and glad hearts. Because they were doing that, they were building that altar right in the midst of, right in the heart of God's deliverance and God's grace and God's mercy. But I wonder if as they were building that altar, they could have possibly imagined how much they would need that reminder of God's faithfulness over what was to come in their history because they couldn't have possibly have foreseen the next couple generations falling into a pattern of sin and disobedience and needing God to deliver them time and time again. They couldn't have possibly foreseen kings that would rise up who didn't follow after God, leading their descendants to follow after foreign gods and fall away from their first love. They could have never imagined being taken from their homeland, from that promised land that God had given them and being moved into exile in places in which they didn't belong. But that's why God was calling them to build that altar so that when those times came, when those seasons of great difficulty and hardship would come, they were able to look to that altar and remember the goodness and the faithfulness of God, to remember that he is the God who brought them out of Egypt who brought them out of the wilderness into the promised land and that his promises would endure. And as we've already seen over the course of this service, that his promises are indeed yes and amen. And they would have this reminder that God is still God, even when he seems distant or even when the future can seem uncertain. And that's important for us as well. Not just every single day of our lives, but also for us as a church as we continue moving through the book of Revelation. And we're a little over halfway done with this book now and we're moving into the next three chapters or so dealing with a very heavy subject. This picture of God's wrath and God's judgment of sin and all of the powers of evil that we've seen take place over the last few chapters. And over the next few weeks, as we look at these passages, The language concerning God's wrath and God's judgment can be heavy, it can be striking, and even at times, uncomfortable. And so to help put the wrath of God in its proper perspective, we first get an altar built for us in the book of Revelation chapter 15. But this isn't an altar of stone built up so that we can see it, but this is an altar of worship as we see this great congregation around God singing his praises and declaring to us a reminder of God's enduring character to help us to recognize the full picture of who God is and remember his goodness and faithfulness even in the midst of difficult passages of scripture. And so in a strange turn of events, leading into the passages of God's wrath, we see a passage of God's people worshiping him. And so it's my hope and my prayer that as we see the character of God, the resume of God, if you will, unfold before us today, that our response, that our hearts would be moved to worship and praise and adoration. And so our passage today is gonna come out of the book of Revelation chapter 15. And we're gonna read verses one through four. And this is the word of God. John said, then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, Seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast in its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb saying, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you and we praise you for who you are. And God, I know I'm very guilty of not doing that enough, of just thanking you for who you are and all that you've done. God, I pray as we look at this passage of scripture today that reminds us of exactly who you are, that you would move our hearts to worship and praise, you would move our hearts to thanksgiving, and that we would see you in the fullness of who you are. So Father God, we just ask and pray that you do bless the reading of your word and that through your Holy Spirit, you would teach us to lead lives of worship. Because you alone are worthy of all the honor and the glory and the praise. And we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. As we see this song played out here, the very first thing that, that is true here in this passage about God is that he is a God of great and amazing works this God to which these people are singing and honoring and glorifying through the song of Moses and the Lamb, the first thing they declare is that he is a God of great and amazing works. Now, I have not been in a position over the course of my life to where I've been the read resume guy to figure out if I'm gonna hire someone, but I have a couple times. There've been a few times when I've looked through resumes for different things and sometimes they're really great and really impressive, And other times, they are less than that. And I remember one time looking through resumes for a student ministry position. One resume came in and it was pretty easily noticeable because it just looked a little bit different, in part because where you would normally maybe see a picture of the applicant, if that's something that's normally included, there was indeed a picture of this person and it was odd because his tongue was sticking out and it looked a little bit like just a fun selfie that you would throw up on social media. And in his list of of attributes and qualities, the top one was pizza connoisseur, which I suppose is a good thing in certain aspects of certain jobs, but not quite exactly what I was looking for. And so I didn't have to dwell on this resume very long because it didn't seem quite like he would fit the bill for what we were looking for. And when you look at a resume... Resumes can be very important because what you do in a resume, the thing that you include there is your past work, your abilities, your gifts, the things that you have that qualify you for a certain position or a certain job. It's making a statement about who you are and who you have been that would give the recipient of your resume the trust and the faith that you would be able to handle any responsibilities that come in the job for which you are applying. And so what we've done in the past is a good indicator for what we will be able to do in the future. And here at the very beginning of this song, this congregation of those who John says conquered the beast in its image and the number of its names, those who stand victorious against the things that would try to pull us away from honoring and glorifying God. He says this congregation begins to sing and when they do, they start with the resume of God. And the resume of God is, is impressive and overwhelming. In fact, they say that God and his works are great and amazing. When we look at the book of Psalms, all throughout the book of Psalms, there are a multitude of these songs that were ingrained in the part of the worship of the people of God, that declare the goodness of God, not simply because of who he is, although there are plenty that just talk about his characteristics and attributes, but there are so many Psalms that declare the goodness of God's works. Psalm 77, verses 11 through 15, says, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old, and I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. (laughs) Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God. You are the God who works wonders and you have made known your might among the peoples and you've redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph, Selah. Psalm 86, 7 through 10 says, in my day of trouble, I will call upon you for you answer me. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Again, in Psalm 92, 4 and 5, for you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands, I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord. Your thoughts are very deep. And time and time again, the people of God were instructed to sing out to God about the goodness of his works, and it was the things that God had done for his people that moved their hearts to thanksgiving and praise. I love that the psalmist uses words like, you have made me glad by your work. And this ability to trust God because of what he's done, he says, I know in my day of trouble I'll call on you because you answer me. And this is just a reminder that time and time again, that always God is working on behalf of his people for his glory, but also for our good. And we see the Bible from Genesis to Revelation reveal the power of God's works, that he is a God who has created us not out of any other need other than the fact that he desired us and he loved us before we took our first breath. And so God created us and gave us life from nothing. And then even knowing that we would fall into sin and brokenness, Even knowing that we would bring our own baggage and our own evil into God's good and holy creation, he still loved us enough that before the foundations of the world, he had orchestrated a plan to bring about redemption for his people and to save us from the mess that we caused. A God who, as we look through the big narrative of scripture, we see him constantly working time and space and history for the good of his people, And that in the fullness of time, he loved us enough that he gave his one and only son that Jesus would come into the world to not only show us God on the most intimate level possible, to not only teach about the kingdom and to bring healing into a broken world, but he sent his son into the world to die a death that we deserve to take our sin on him on the cross and to die a criminal's death only to be raised again three days later to give us the hope and the promise of a salvation that will never pass away. These are the great and amazing works of our God and they're just too numerous to even continue naming. Even in the book of John at the end, just talking about the life and the ministry of Jesus. John says that if we were to write down all the works that Christ did in his ministry, that all the books of the world couldn't contain them. And he does all of those things because he loves us. And so this passage is a call to remember God's works. And as we do, As we remember the resume of God, not only throughout human history, but in our own lives, as God has worked on our behalf more times than we can count, we need to be drawn to a heart and an attitude of praise and worship, even in the midst of the times when we feel uncertain. That like the psalmist, we would come back to God time and time again because we know that he is a God who works for his glory, but also for our good. And a God who answers us in our time of need, because he's a God of great and amazing works. But also in this passage, we see God revealed as a just and a true judge. And now if you've been here for a while, you may know one of my favorite parables that Jesus teaches is the parable of the persistent widow, in which there's a woman who has been wronged. And we don't get an indication of what that wrong is, but there's been an injustice done against her. And she comes to this judge and she pleads her case. But Jesus says this judge is someone who doesn't fear God nor respect people. And so time and time again, the judge pushes this woman off saying, nope, I'm not going to help you. I don't care about you. Go away. Leave me alone. But this widow comes back time and time again over and over and over again, pleading for justice to be done. And finally, this wicked and unjust judge relents just to get the woman to leave him alone. He says, fine, you can have your justice, just stop bothering me. And Jesus says, if that kind of judge, who doesn't fear God nor respect people, is able to provide justice to those who need it, imagine how much more your good and faithful God is able to bring justice to his people. And as Jesus tells that parable, there's so many powerful things that he reveals to us about the character and the nature of God. But one of those things is that he makes this comparison. Even though it is a a contrasting comparison between the unrighteous judge and God, Jesus is painting us a picture that in fact, part of God's character and part of God's role in this world is to be a divine and holy judge. But Jesus takes it as a given that God is a good and a perfect judge. Judge. And here in this song, there's echoes of that as we see the people crying out, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. We have these two words that they use to describe God and his judgment in the world, saying that he is just and he is true second word there I think is incredibly important. Both words are so powerful in communicating to us who God is. But we see that God's justice is true, meaning that God doesn't act impulsively, God doesn't act randomly in his judgment, or God doesn't act subjectively as we understand the idea of subjective judgment. But then when God makes a judgment, he always does so out of a basis of truth. And so that makes us understand that God is incredibly trustworthy in all that he does because he's not moved by wayward emotions like we are so often in our judgment, but God always, always makes his judgments based on truth and on his infinite wisdom. In Psalm 18, verse 30, it says, this God, his way is perfect. And the word of the Lord proves true. And he is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. And so for the psalmist, this idea that God only acts in truth is a reason why we can take our refuge and place our trust completely and totally in him. But not only is he a God who judges in truth, but he also does so justly. And he is a God who is in very nature just. And this means that he is a God that rights wrongs. He is a God that corrects injustices. He is a God that punishes wickedness. And we've already seen indications of this all the way through the book of Revelation, that there is a promise that one day God's patience is going to run out and he is going to move in judgment on the world and to judge sin and all the brokenness that's been brought into his creation. But I think it's important to notice here but this talks about God being just, but it doesn't use the word "fair." And I think there's some good news in that, because when we talk about the gospel, this truth that we call good news, the gospel is not fair. Because the Bible teaches us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that every single one of us have done things or not done things that have been dishonoring to God in an act of rebellion against God. And the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death and that that's what all of us deserve. And it would go even further to say that our righteousness is like filthy rags before God because of our sin. And so there's no work, there's no effort that we can do, that we can accomplish, that would earn that salvation or that favor of God. And if we were to get what we deserved, if we were to get what was fair, then none of us could stand boldly before a just and a holy judge. But God in his richness of mercy, and with the great love that he lavishes on us, gave Christ, and Christ unfairly, the one who was tempted in all the ways in which we were, but was without sin, that Jesus, the incarnate son of God, stepped in our place and went to a criminal's cross and endured our death on our behalf and became our sin for us so that we didn't have to bear the weight and the difficulty and the consequences and the condemnation of our sin. But Jesus took those things on himself and God judged Jesus in place of those who trust in him. And so there is good news in the unfairness of the gospel because that's the only way that lost and broken sinners can become sons and daughters of God. But we do see this picture here, that this is a God in whom we can place our total trust because he's given us this entrance into his grace and mercy through Jesus Christ for anyone who trusts in Jesus and he draws us to him through his kindness and compassion. But we also have this promise that when it is time for God to deal with sin, he will deal with sin justly and truthfully. And we can place all of our total trust and affection in him because he is just and true in all that he does. And this helps us to see clearly what we're gonna move into over the next few chapters as we see the righteous wrath and judgment of God, as we look forward to Christ returning and making all things right and all things new. So he's a God of great and amazing works. He's a just and true judge. And then finally, we see here that he is a holy and righteous king. And it is odd that as we are moving into these very difficult and heavy passages about the wrath of God, that the prelude to that is worship. And we have to ask the question, why? Why is this here? Because we know that everything, especially in the book of Revelation, but every page and every word of scripture is put in its place as God communicates to us who he is. And so every moment of scripture finds a purpose, not only in what it says, but in where it's placed in this big story of God's redemption of his people. And so why would this song be the prelude to everything that's about to follow? Well, because God is awesome and God is holy, and God is almighty. And whether it's in his salvation and his grace and mercy, or even leading into this time of his wrath and judgment, anytime time that the people of God are given even a glimpse of the glory of God in Scripture, we see that the only appropriate response to him is worship and praise. And they say there in verse four, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name?" For you alone are holy. All the nations will come and worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed. The people of God are saying here in this passage, we've seen at least a little bit of who you are. We've started to recognize how powerful and awesome and holy and just and mighty and merciful that you are. We're starting to see the fullness of this come about. And because of that, the hearts of the people are moved to worship. And when we see God acting throughout scripture, we recognize that our God is holy and set apart. That he's not simply a God who does good, but he is the embodiment of good. And everything that we know and understand to be good is so because God has declared it to be so. He is holy and completely righteous and awesome. And in, my, in spite of all of that, that he is all of those things and we are not, he still loves us with an unconditional, unfailing love. And so while we still have so much to learn about who God is, and even inside of the book of Revelation, we're going to see so much about his character revealed over these last seven chapters. We've seen enough to know that our God is holy and righteous and that his works are great and amazing. And so we need to build these altars in our lives, these reminders of who God is. We need to heed that that calling all throughout scripture to remember, just like God would call his people from generation to generation saying, remember, I'm the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm the God who led your people out of slavery and out of the wilderness and into the holy promised land. I'm the one who is with you in the midst of your exile. I'm the one who has this promise for you that I'm bringing my Messiah into the world. Remember who I am. Jesus again calls us to do the same in the New Testament as he gives us this communion meal, saying as often as you do this, remember me. Remember what I've done for you. Remember my death and my resurrection. When we see the baptism waters broken as a new believer goes under the water and comes back out, we're called to be reminded of what God has done for us, not just spiritually in our salvation not just eternally in the hope that we have in Jesus, but in the fact that day after day, his mercies are new every morning and the God who begins the good work in us is working our salvation out within us each and every day and will one day complete it. We need to remember who God is and worship him because of it each and every moment of our lives. There's a temptation to compartmentalize God and to look at all of his different characteristics as individual things. And sometimes we emphasize one side, sometimes we emphasize another. Or sometimes we draw imaginary lines through scripture and it's revelation of God, looking at a God of the Old Testament and separating that from a God of the New Testament. But the book of Revelation has told us time and time again that there is one God and he is the same today, yesterday, and forever. And so as we get this big picture of who God is, And as we approach these next few chapters of God's wrath and God's judgment, that's just as much of a part of his characteristic as is his mercy and grace and salvation. Let's approach these next few chapters with the full character of God in our hearts and in our minds and keep those hearts and minds filled with worship and adoration of the God who is, who was, and who always will be of the God who has shown us his character through his great and amazing works and proved himself time and time again to be just and true and holy and righteous. And as we get these glimpses of who he is, join in with this chorus of the redeemed, praising God, saying, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. We will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name for you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed. Let's pray. Father God, (laughs) it's crazy to even think that we need reminders because of how good and awesome and holy you are. But God, I just thank you for your patience with us and the fact that that you are so familiar with our weaknesses and our struggles and our shortcomings that you constantly go out of your way to make sure that we know who you are that we remember your amazing works in the past as a, a promise of your works in the future. That from Genesis to Revelation, we see that your character never changes, that your ways are always just and true. And that from eternity past to eternity future, you are good and righteous and holy. So God, I pray that you write that song on our hearts. And that with every breath, with every action, with every day that you grant us in this world, that we would be faithful worshipers of you, that you would never let us grow tired or weary of worshiping and honoring and praising you, but that each day through your word, through prayer, through your spirit and through your church, that we would be stirred up to celebrate your goodness and your grace. And so God, as we prepare to come to this table, we thank you that you have given us reminders, not just in word, not just spiritually, but God, you've given us physical reminders that we can touch and taste and see and smell and experience your grace and mercy through this table. So we pray that you bless the bread and the cup and that you would remind us of your presence with us here today as we come. We ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus.